This is Talking with Green Teachers, a show where environmental educators discuss recent developments, big ideas, and creative approaches to teaching green. In this episode... Some students come into these programs with a really positive association with the outdoors and are ready to jump right in and, and um, you know, will happily skip down the trail. Uh, and there are many students for whom this is a, a really new experience and may not feel safe. It, it may even, uh, you know, provoke trauma. And, and so... gentle gust of wind enlivens the canopy as a child approaches the base of a towering sequoia in Mariposa Grove, the largest of three well-known clusters of these ancient giants in Yosemite National Park. How was this once a seed? It's almost silly. This is day three of five on this overnight science program with Nature Bridge a residential environmental learning center that has operated since 1971. Routes like Nature Bridge allow students to explore green spaces while igniting their social and emotional learning. Recently, educators at RALCS were gifted with a new comprehensive tool for nurturing students' social and emotional learning, the aptly named Grow Outside Project. Here is Estrella Reisinger of the California Association for Environmental and Outdoor Education on the development of Grow Outside. Grow Outside was born out of NatureBridge's involvement in the SD Bechtel Jr. Foundation's Character Initiative, which aims to strengthen evaluation and continuous improvement systems within influential youth development organizations. At NatureBridge, which is a residential environmental learning center, or RALC, where student groups spend multiple days living and learning together about the natural world, we focused on better understanding and then implementing best practices in social and emotional learning, or SEL. And I think it's important to note that while there exist several leading frameworks and theories related to youth's development of the skills and attitudes necessary for success in school, work, and life, SEL is a term that has gained popularity and use in recent years, particularly in formal education. And so that's where we put our emphasis. We really saw this as an opportunity to strengthen our practice and to articulate the unique value of our field to the growing body of research on positive youth development. The child walks forward, stepping on a small round lump, a sequoia cone. We're not supposed to take anything from a national park, but what's the harm on keeping it for two nights? How then did this expand to include other organizations? After a deep dive into our own organization, in the fall of 2018, NatureBridge convened a working group of 10 other RELC organizations, along with our partners at the, at the Beatles Project out of the Lawrence Hall of Science at UC Berkeley. Our collaborative spent a year working through the question of how to most effectively incorporate SEL frameworks, research, and preferred practices into residential environmental education programming. And the result of that partnership is Grow Outside, uh, which is grow-outside.org. We believe that for the field of residential environmental ed to remain relevant, it's essential that we develop an understanding of SEL, strive to incorporate research-based best practices, 
and articulate our unique value and contribution to the growing awareness of how best to support young people's development. People often talk these days about getting caught down internet rabbit holes, and I found myself going down several rabbit holes on your website, uh, all of them very meaningful, I should add. And there are just so many tools. You've got the reflection tool, links to studies like the one that the Beatles Project was involved with about equity and inclusion in the workplace. With regards to equity and inclusion specifically, during the process of all of this coming together, were there any priorities that naturally rose to the surface? Taking the context around you into account is essential. And uh, in, in, and in the context of culture, of uh, you know, thinking about what's happening in your community, even more so thinking about what's happening, you know, in your organization itself. And, and that's why if you look at the way we've laid out these resources, we wanted to ensure that there were resources that spoke to what happens in the field, certainly, because that is incredibly important and influential, but also what can happen at the organizational level. And one of the primary resources on the site uh, is the reflection tool. And it is a beast. It's a long document, <laughs> but um, we really see it as as one of the kind of cornerstone materials uh, that resulted through this project because it takes all of these elements um, chapter by chapter, right? So thinking about the organizational context, thinking about what's happening in the residential setting where students are living and learning together overnight, um, thinking about what happens between a student and an educator out in the field. Uh, thinking about how the organization is engaging its stakeholders and involving them in decision making. All of these components are laid out step by step with reflective questions and prompts to help you as an organizational leader really look at your current practice. You know, we created this resource with some support from the Beatles Project, uh, from their staff, and much of it was built off that design that you see um, that is one of the recommendations coming out of that, that equitable uh, study that they did, uh, which is a capacity building tool to specifically focus on the role of cultural relevancy and, uh, and equity in your program setting. Let, let's get into that cultural relevance piece. And how does that manifest in a very practical on the ground level? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it looks different in, in different program sites, you know, as, as it should. <laughs> I think that, um, you know, one of the criticisms that has come out uh, about social and emotional learning is that it's been this sort of off the shelf, uh, you know, one size fits all approach. And, um, and we know that in reality, that's not the case. And, you know, it's, I think, similar to any quality science instruction it needs to be differentiated. Uh, you know, there needs to be adaptability, um, you know, opportunities for uh, teachable moments. And, you know, and, and really the, the deep learning that can happen is when students are most engaged and are helping to, to generate content and contribute to their own learning. With social and emotional learning, similarly, you know, we see the need for, you know, an e educators to have the skills so that they can tailor their instruction, tailor their approach so that it really meets the students where they're at. Um, and in terms of the cultural relevancy component, you know, there are so many different ways that uh, educators can, can meet the needs of their students and, and support them in their program understanding where they're coming from and, and what their experiences have been in the outdoors. You know, some, some students come into these programs with a really positive association with the outdoors. 
and are ready to jump right in and, and um, you know, will happily skip down the trail. Uh, and there are many students for whom this is a, a really new experience and may not feel safe. It, it may even, uh, you know, provoke trauma. And, and so providing the educator with training and, and tools to support young people, no matter what their experience in the outdoors has been to, to make that be uh, a safe that feels safe, where they feel included, uh, where their full self, you know, is uh, reflected in the curriculum, in, you know, the educators themselves. So that's looking at, for example, the hiring processes. You know, right. we, we have a lot of work to do as a field and a great necessity to look critically at who has had access to an environmental education, you know, who ha is being called uh, to do the work and and who we're hiring and you know looking at our recruitment strategies looking at our our networks and um, really thinking about how we can better serve our young people so that they feel reflected uh you know in their their teachers as well as in the curriculum one thing i do want to be clear you know this resource the growoutside.org we see tremendous overlap between social and emotional learning and equity and inclusion work, you know, obviously, <laughs> you know, sure. you, can't, yeah. you can't, I, I personally believe you can't really uh, approach social and emotional learning without attending to equity and inclusion, at least not well. And throughout the resource, you'll see a number of places where we do make reference and kind of think about whether it's a call out or, you know, a call in, um, <clears throat> kind of thinking about how a question might be worded in a certain way, or, you know, what, what might you want to be thinking about in your hiring? Um, for example, yet none of us have that as our, our primary background and our primary lens, you know? So we are not making a claim that this is um, a resource focused solely on equity and inclusion. And in fact, we, we point to a number of other leaders in the field, um, like the Center for Diversity uh, in the Environment, Youth Outside, um, Avarna Group, you know, there are, are some really spectacular organizations who are doing great work in this crossover of equity and inclusion and nature-based programming. And we do our best to kind of showcase them and, and highlight their work and direct people towards those organizations for direct support themselves, while also, you know, attempting to help to, to um, illustrate some of that overlap. It's time for a short break. We'll be right back. The child doesn't even look at the cone over the final two days. Just knowing it's there in the side pouch of their backpack is enough. A small bulge representing so much. Potential. Change. Hope. I know a big part of this discussion is just the overall historical context of environmental education. Can you sort of unpack that aspect? Because I think that's a really important thing to establish and it might not necessarily be top of mind for many people just because it's, it's been set in stone for so long. Yeah, I mean, for those of us who are, are well-versed and kind of familiar with this field, we, you know, if you, if you ask your average environmental educator, like, what does an environmental educator look like? Or what is environmental education? Right. You know, unfortunately, a lot of us might imagine someone young, white, fit, able-bodied resources. They are probably well-educated. And there are many educators out there that fit that description who are exceptional <laughs> and, you know, well-deserving of being in the field. Um, and there are countless others who are doing this good work, um, but perhaps 
may not consider themselves, you know, environmental educators or, or haven't been welcomed. And, and certainly even, you know, far greater numbers of folks who, who could be terrific working in the field, working with young people, um, but who haven't felt included in this space. And if you look at the leadership across our organizations, you know, we, we know that this is a predominantly white field and we yeah. have a lot of work to do. And I think it's really interesting. Some of the work that came out of the Green 2.0 project, looking at more more conservation uh, side of, of environmental organizations. We know that the educational system uh, has had, you know, a number of exclusionary practices as well that have historically, you know, pushed out educators of color and um, so here we are at this at this kind of crossroads, right, between the environmental movement and the educational movement, and combined in environmental education, we see kind of vestiges of, of both, you know, and and some of the challenges. It feels like at this moment there is this um, real reckoning and 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 tremendous opportunity, you know, and you do see a lot more positive outreach efforts. You you see just in the, in the last year, you know, a number of organizations that are led by and for people of color in the outdoors, and really a push to, you know, have organizations look critically at their hiring practices, at their organizational structures, at their leadership team, um, really at all levels of their organization to be thinking about how do we best lift up young people? If that is our goal, you know, we can't be blind to the way our organizations are set up. And there, it feels like there's some really positive momentum now, but we are, you know, we're talking about uh, decades of uh, practices where we have not been fully, um, in, you know, inclusive or, or equitable as a field. What are, what are some of, you, know, you could call them invisible barriers, that even people with the best intentions who are, are trying to create an open and equitable environment, what are, what are some of those invisible barriers that they may be missing? Are hiring practices and, and recruitment practices, are they truly equitable? And looking at promotion practices in particular, you know, who is getting those opportunities to step up in the organizations? Who are being mentored? Who are being trained? Is that, a, you know, being approached in an, an equitable way as well? You know, another piece I think is just the environmental education itself. You know, I think that we have, we've really done ourselves a, a disservice in some of the the images that we've used. And, and I, you know, I want to point to the outdoor recreation industry as well, who, uh, you know, similarly is going through a real kind of reckoning period right now with being called to look at who is wearing their gear, you know, who, what kinds of bodies are we seeing in these advertisements? And, you know, I, 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 I think that there, we've certainly have perhaps not intentionally, um, but we are, are experiencing now the fallout of the impact of holding up kind of this ideal of what environmental education is and, and who it's for. And, you know, I think that, you know, you, we, we have to also look at the instruction itself, you know, and, and thinking about uh, what I mentioned earlier about the experience of, of many young people and people of color, you know, having historical uh, trauma associated with being in the outdoors. And, us not really talking about that or even being aware of it. By us, I'm, I'm referring to, you know, white educators and, and, and yeah. us, yeah. you know, trainers. And so really needing to think about uh, our, our teaching practices as well and kind of recognizing that we have a lot of great work to do <laughs> to 
uh, improve our practices, um, you know, for those of us who are, are, you know, current practitioners. So I talked about recruitment and hiring and, you know, all of those opportunities. And absolutely, yes, they are important. Um, but for those who are working in the field now, what can we do to make the experience better for our students? And that's what the Grow Outside resource is really all about, is trying to help us to look reflectively at our practice to try and encourage our organizations to find opportunities for growth in the same way that we want our students to look carefully, develop self-awareness, find opportunities, right, for ways that they can be a better citizen, you know, really show up. How do they want to show up in the world? Uh, something that we talk about a lot. And, and I think that our organizations need to do that hard work too. The final morning has arrived. Reluctantly, the child removes the cone from their backpack, hesitating slightly about whether to keep it or let it go. Looking ahead, what does progress look like? I gotta say, it's hard to imagine exactly what progress or success would look like several years from now when in reality, we're just focusing on our, our day-to-day and, and trying to survive. As a field, we have been impacted tremendously by COVID-19 and a number of the organizations and many of those even who are a part of our collaborative have been in a situation where they've been required to shut their doors, if not go on hibernation. Luckily, you know, there has been great creativity in our field and we're seeing organizations uh, and, and educators develop all sorts of unique approaches to connecting young people with the natural world, even through these challenging times, you know, offering online programs, collaborating with in-school teachers, having physically dis- distance programs, you know, where, where that's feasible. Perhaps most remarkably, you know, I think given this particular moment in history, there is this really just a- amazing optimism around what we hope our field might look like when we are able to emerge and centered to that hope is is equity and the conversations that i've been having with a number of other program leaders about what it will look like to return to programming i i don't hear anyone talking about returning to programming as usual that this really is an opportunity for deep introspection and for improvement and I think that's great, <laughs> you know, as, as difficult as this moment has been. And, you know, there is a lot of uncertainty about what the future will look like for environmental education and in particular for residential environmental education, which, you know, seems to have been hit amongst the hardest. You know, there is, there's great hope as well. And I see organizations using this time to conduct a real serious pause, to look at their hiring practices, to consider how their programming might become more culturally relevant to think about how to distribute you know the impact on on staff so that it's not just felt by frontline educators and in particular staff of color that is something that we are really concerned about and it's a concern that's now top of mind in so many discussions and as you say going back to as usual isn't really on the table people want to do better and there seems to be very real hope that we will do better What else is giving you hope these days? What has you excited? One thing that I'm personally really excited about is that I I now wear another hat. I'm the executive director at AEOE, which is California's Association for Environmental and Outdoor Education. And we are launching a, a certification program for environmental educators. It's been something that's been in the works for many years. And 
you know, we thought a lot about whether this was the right time to take this big step forward, but the feeling was that now more than ever, we want to be able to come together in community and, and really focus on creating the type of world that we want. And, and to do so, to think about how to strengthen the practice of current practicing environmental educators. And social and emotional learning is at the core of that program. We're really thinking about how to develop relationships, the, the network building that is possible, the type of reflective practice that is a, a core to what you see at growoutside.org, and really ensuring that social and emotional learning is built into the design of the program as well as the content itself, that in order to be an environmental educator, you have to have an awareness of what's happening in youth development and, and in particular, a need to focus on equity and inclusion. And I'm really delighted just to see the applications coming in and, and the enthusiasm that educators are expressing across the state for having an opportunity to continue to advance their learning um, and to advance the field collectively. Final thoughts about the direction we're headed? It's hard to imagine exactly what <laughs> what this world will look like two, three, five years from now. My hope is that we are moving towards a society where every young person has the opportunity to experience meaningful learning experiences outdoors, where they are feel themselves reflected in their educators, where they feel heard, where they feel valued, and where being in nature is something that is second nature, you know, to each one of us, that it's built into our very school systems. Will we get there in two or three years? Unlikely, but given the current conversations around outdoor learning and the increased uh, need for and value of having experiences in nature that we're seeing all across the country, I'm certainly hopeful that we'll get there. There wasn't enough time to take the sequoia cone all the way back from whence it came, but the child left it on their bed, confident that one of the Nature Bridge staff would find it and take it back to Mariposa Grove, where it would once again rest in the shade of its parent. A small bundle of potential, ready to sprout new life. Talking with Green Teachers is co-hosted by Ian Shanahan and me, Sofia Vargas-Nessi. I also voice most of the ads. Ian serves as the show's writer and editor. Logo design and additional voiced ads are by Devin Terrian. Look for our monthly episodes on greenteacher.com. For access to all episodes, subscribe to Green Teacher and also receive our quarterly magazine, as well as exclusive access to our vast archive of webinars and magazine back issues. Thank you for joining us on this episode. We'll chat again soon.